What a week it was between the triumphant entry of Jesus and the disciples on Palm Sunday. As we observed last week, he was greeted with palm branches and shouts of, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. A good deal transpires uh, this week between the entry into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21 and chapters 26 where we find the account of the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, as well as Jesus' time of intense prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then a little while later, when the disciples could not even stay awake to pray with him, He prayed, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. In verses 47 through 56, we witness the betrayal of the Lord by Judas. And in verse 56, the scripture says, then all the disciples left him and fled. Jesus is led away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together just as they had previously been when they plotted against him. When Jesus was brought before them, they tried to obtain false testimony against him, that they might put him to death. They were itching to destroy him, to be done with this man once and for all. Verse 60 of chapter 26 says, They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. They did not understand what he was saying. But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you. Hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you now have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? It's an interesting phrasing to me. He declares, It's blasphemy. What do you think? (laughs) And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him. And Jesus let them. In chapter 27 of Matthew's gospel, we see that later that morning they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Pilate, though, finding no fault in Jesus, succumbed to the clamor of the mob as they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And he released the notorious prisoner Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. 
But before handing him over to be crucified, Pilate had Jesus scourged and beaten. He was hardly innocent. All the people said, His blood shall be on us and our children. The Roman soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort, a battalion of soldiers, around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and they pressed it onto his head. They put a reed in his right hand and they bowed down and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him. They took the reed and they began to beat him on his head. When they had their fill of mockery, they took the scarlet robe off and put his own garments back on him. And they led him away to crucify him. And he let them. They made Jesus carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem where he was mocked and spat upon by the crowds. Perhaps not far from the throngs that a few days earlier had cheered him. Matthew says, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. He was willing to drink of the Father's cup. They drove nails through his hands and his feet, and they lifted the cross that he was nailed to with ropes and dropped it with a violent thud into the hole that had been dug for it. He struggled as gravity pulled his body down while he tried to lift himself by his nailed feet and hands to grasp for one breath after another. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up on the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Two thieves were being crucified on either side of him, and they were insulting him. The people passing by hurled abuse at him. The chief priest also and scribes and elders in attendance mocked him, and he led them. Continuing in Matthew 27, 45 through 55, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and he put it on a reed and he gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. John 19:30 says, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, 
they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Was any of this a surprise to God? Was, any, was it an unexpected turn of events for Jesus? Hadn't planned on this. No. He knew what was in front of him. He knew what he was allowing them to do to him. He passionately prayed in the garden for the strength to drink of this cup. As Luke's account records, Jesus prayed on the cross as they were killing him. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What transpired on Holy Friday was prophesied by Isaiah over seven centuries before, as seen in Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before the shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. There's so much to draw from this incredible passage. Jesus is the perfect lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way. We are all sinners. There is none righteous, no, not one. Only Jesus Christ, fully God, 
and fully man can atone for the sins of the world. He allowed the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He rendered himself as a guilt offering and he suffered in silence. There's a verse in this passage that I wonder if we have given much thought to. I hadn't before this. It said his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. It's interesting to note that Jesus' body was removed from the cross in the afternoon of that Friday. It was the end of Passover, and this was the day of preparation. Jerusalem was busy on Friday afternoon doing, Friday afternoon doing all its shopping and making preparation for the day of rest, the Sabbath. The king of glory had just been crucified in the most heinous way, and yet people went about their business as if nothing had happened. The religious leaders did not want the bodies of Jesus and the two thieves hanging on the cross during the Sabbath. As Isaiah indicated, had God not intervened, the body of Jesus would have been dumped along with the thieves. Instead, God sent a rich man to take care of his body. We find this account in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Here were two influential men who were secretly disciples of Jesus. They'd not been public in their promotion of Jesus, but they loved him, and they could not bear the thought of him being treated this way or his body being disposed of and handled as if trash. So these two men, emboldened by their love for Jesus, did something about it. Joseph mustered the courage, and he went to Pilate himself, to ask for Christ's body. It doesn't get any more public than that. I mean, you're putting yourself out there at that point. And he provided a newly hewn tomb to lay the body of Jesus in. Isaiah prophesied it. God prepared for it. Joseph and Nicodemus made it so as they lovingly honored Jesus. It was a good and precious thing that they did publicly because they loved Jesus. There are so many messages in these accounts of Christ's crucifixion. Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to serve, not to be served. The perfect Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. The faithfulness of Joseph and Nicodemus, Mary and the other women who were at the cross. The tearing of the veil in the temple at the moment that Christ died. 
This was a powerful statement by God that the barrier that existed between God and man had been torn down, that we no longer need a priest to represent us to God because Christ is our high priest forever. All powerful messages. There is so much depth to the plans of God. Friday must have been a very long day for those who love Jesus. Can you imagine what must have been going through their minds and hearts on that day? Saturday was the day of rest, the Sabbath. But for those who love Jesus, it must have been a torturous day. As a steady stream of what ifs, if onlys, flooded their hearts and minds. How difficult it must have been for Peter who pledged his allegiance to Christ and then denied him when pressed by a woman in a crowd, just as Jesus said he would. If only I had not denied him, he must have thought. What was to become of them now? Their world had been shaken. Jesus had been taken. But had he? Had his enemies taken him? Remember what Christ said in John 10, 17 through 18. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Jesus had labored in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, summoning the strength to do the Lord's will, the Father's will. He had faithfully carried that out, carried out the plan of God for the salvation of the world, and it was finished. But was it? The death of God's only begotten Son as a sacrifice for sinners was complete. But the greatest enemy was yet to be vanquished, death itself. Friday was a day of preparation, but the disciples weren't prepared for what God had prepared for Sunday. I want to read the account of that Sunday morning from the Gospel of John in chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone had already been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. But he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. 
weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. <laughs> she had already grabbed hold of him. Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his feet and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, put my finger in the place of the nails, put my hand in his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors had been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Thinking back to the crowd, there was an interesting thing that the crowd before Pilate cried out when he washed his hands of the crucifixion. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. What an arrogant and bewilderingly thing to say. And yet it was true. 
Jesus' blood either covers us or it's on us. It either covers us or it's on us. We must choose. Either we accept the death of Christ on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins that covers us with forgiveness, grace, and mercy and ushers us into a life of relationship with him. Or we're judged by his blood as it is on all who crucify the Son of God by their sin and rebellion and unbelief. Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. We come to a relationship with Christ through faith. I think Romans 5 puts it best when it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. The resurrection is central to the authenticity of the gospel. It's the empty tomb that distinguishes Jesus from any other religious person, uh, leader, or faith figure that's ever lived. Because they no longer live. (laughs) They're dead. Jesus is alive. He is risen. Tim Keller has said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you liked what he said, his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Lee Strobel, once an avowed atheist, said, Jesus Christ did not come into this world to make bad people good. He came into this world to make dead people live. John Stott Stott said, we live and die. Jesus Christ died and lived. The watchman Nee said, our old history ends with the cross. Our new history begins with the resurrection. I think it's important to know that, that the resurrection of Jesus was not like the resurrection of Lazarus or of those who came out of the grave when the temple veil was torn in two. Wayne Grudem, in his extensive book, Systematic Theology and Introduction to Biblical Doctrine, said this. 
Christ's resurrection was not simply a coming back from the dead, as had been experienced by others before, such as Lazarus. For then Jesus would have been subject to weakness and aging and eventually would have died again, as all human beings do. Rather, when he rose from the dead, Jesus was the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23, of a new kind of human life, a life in which his body was made perfect, no longer subject to weakness, aging or death, but able to live eternally. Jesus did, Jesus did not look exactly as he had looked before he died. For in addition to, uh, excuse me, in addition to the initial amazement of the disciples at what they apparently thought could not happen, there was probably sufficient difference in his physical appearance for Jesus to not be immediately recognized. Mary didn't recognize him at first. Perhaps that difference in appearance was simply the difference between a man who had lived a life of suffering and hardship and grief and one whose body was restored to its full youthful appearance of perfect health. Though Jesus' body was still a physical body, it was raised as a transformed body, never able to suffer, be weak or, or ill or die again. It had put on immortality, as 1 Corinthians 15:53 says. Paul says the resurrection body is raised imperishable, in glory, in power, a spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15:42. The crucifixion and death of Christ on the cross paid for sin once for all. The resurrection of Christ had conquered death once for all. And soon Christ will come again to claim his bride and to reign and rule for all eternity. You'll remember a key verse of a few messages this year coming from Philippians 3.20. I think it's appropriate again this morning. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Christ's resurrection was the first fruit of that new life and is the promise, hope, and joy of every believer who loves and follows him. Jonathan Edwards wrote of the resurrection of Christ, The resurrection of Christ is the most joyful event that ever came to pass, because hereby... Christ rested from the great and difficult work of purchasing redemption and received God's testimony that it was finished. The death of Christ was the greatest and most wonderful event that ever came to pass. But, Christ, but that has a great deal that in it is sorrowful. But by the resurrection of Christ, that sorrow is turned into joy. The head of the church in that great event enters on the possession of eternal life and the whole church, as it were, begotten again to a lively hope. Weeping had continued for a night, but now joy cometh in the morning. The resurrection of Jesus is the deepest source of joy and hope that we can ever know. He is risen, and that makes all the difference.
Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for your great mercy and the way that you've loved us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly. All of us as sinners, we've all sinned. There's none righteous, no, not one. So you sent your son to be the sacrifice, to pay the price, to restore relationship with you, to to rip that veil apart. Lord Jesus, thank you for the enduring the cross. I can't imagine what you went through. Only you could do it. The scripture says, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. It was the joy before you. You knew what was ahead if you could accomplish this. I thank you that you not only had the power to endure the crucifixion, despising the shame. You had the power to raise yourself up from the grave. And that's what we celebrate today, the risen Christ, the one true God. We give you glory. We bless you. We pray that our lives might honor you, that our words might please you, our thoughts might please you. I thank you for the living hope that you've given us by your spirit. I thank you that we are sealed by your spirit for that day of promise. We love you, Lord Jesus. and We thank you that you are risen. You are risen. Rise up within us to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.